Let's start with prayer. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted in a wonderful order the ministries of angels and mortals. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment they may help and defend us here on earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, I wanted to read, there were two extra verses I didn't include in the reading from Genesis. So I'll start with 17 where it ended and just read two more. When it said, Jacob was afraid and said, this is a very great place. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob got up very early in the morning. He took the rock he had slept on and set it up on its edge. Then he poured oil on the rock. In this way, he made it a memorial to God. The name of the place was Luz, but Jacob named it Bethel. Um, I wanted to thank um, Father Seth. A few days ago, it was actually the, the holy day, the feast day of St. Michael and all angels. And so I asked Father Seth for the readings if we could do the if we could actually do that today. Because um, I always get kind of down that holy days fall on weekdays when nobody's in church. So you don't get St. James or St. Michael or you don't get the feast days for all these saints and these things, these people that have lessons to teach us because the church calendar was set at one time when people went to church for morning and evening prayer daily. And that's not the way our, you know, things are today. So we miss those days, and he was gracious enough to let uh, me do St. Michael and all angels uh, today instead. Um, I wanted to add that we actually have an advantage over angels, um, just on a side note. When angels, when God made the infinite multitude of the angelic beings in eternity past, before there was time, Angels don't have a corporeal body. They're not bound to time and space, so they live in the eternal present. And when God reveals something to angels, first of all, angels, each angel is its unique species. Um, some of you might have read some of this. Um, so it's not like when we have children, angels don't have children. So when God made the trillions of angels or whatever, there was each angel was its own species. And when God reveals something to angels, then angels know the full extent of it and the full depth of it. So angels are not learning. They don't have like stages of development like we do. Like children grow and as they develop and their intellect develops, they learn and they grow. Angels know the fullness of what God reveals when he chooses to. And they know the full implications and ramifications of it. And they live outside of time. And they live outside of corporeal space, so they know instantaneously. So when we read throughout the scriptures of, uh, in the Old Testament, when Lucifer decided to rebel and took the angels, and there's church fathers that hypothesize why, and I'll allude to this, but what the difference was is that the moment they made that decision, they made that decision in the eternal now. 
So there was no time to go back and repent because they knew the full consequences of what would happen. We actually have an advantage because we have time and space. So when we make mistakes and when we screw up or sin or things like that, we don't always realize the full implications of what we're doing, the full impact it's going to have. So time and space and flesh and matter have actually uh, have been as painful and as difficult as that is, is actually an opportunity to, for, uh, to go back and repent or make amends or learn from our mistakes. So the one time we make a mistake or sin, that's not the final thing. Redemption in time is actually a blessing where the angelic beings knew full well, like we will do something and go, I can't realize, I don't realize that that was what was going to happen when I sinned, or I didn't realize that would be the full impact, or I didn't know it would be that bad, or angels didn't have that blessing. They knew full well. So when Lucifer and the rest of the angels made that decision, they knew this was the eternal decision that would seal their fate and what that consequence was, and they did it anyway. And with that full knowledge and ramifications with all that God had revealed to them. And that's what made that fall so difficult. So there's actually, as hard as this life can be with our mortal bodies that um, age and injure or that get older and creak, um, we actually have a blessing in that sense. Angels descending and ascending. I was struggling with the readings of how to blend them into doing honor into St. Michael and the blessed angels as well as doing justice to uh, our Lord is Christ being the focus of our worship. In our Old Testament reading, it was a dream, and in our New Testament reading, it was a description of what would actually take place. Just what do angels have to do with our Lord's redemption in our life as Christians today? Our New Testament reading is within the context of the Messianic promise given to Jacob. In our Old Testament reading, Jacob sees this ladder in a dream touching the earth and touching heaven, with the Lord standing on top of a ladder, and from the ladder, the promise of salvation that would come through his descendants that the Savior in this redemption would have a worldwide impact until the end of time, that this salvation and redemption would cover the ends of the earth and would include all persons from all families and all races, tribes, and kindreds. And while God is promising this to Jacob, we see angels, these heavenly messengers, descending and ascending in this dream. God's messengers are shown to be interacting between heaven and earth. And when the Lord shows this promise to Jacob in a dream, Jacob wakes and is struck with an overwhelming and terrifying sense that this very place where God communicated to him is a special or sacred place. It's interesting that encountering God in a moment of grace is also described as something terrifying or something that can make you afraid that we don't often think of this, but grace and being afraid might coexist within the same moment. 
So if you've ever encountered our Lord or our Lord's ever encountered you in a way or called you or visited you in some way to reveal something to you or to draw you out from something and you're afraid or scared, don't think something's necessarily wrong with that. That might actually be a grace that God's given you to realize the magnitude that the creator of the universe is communing with you. Jacob had this sense with this dream, and he realized that this was special and sacred, this place. And it was not until Jacob slept that he realized the Lord was at this special place. And it's often in the moments where we least expect to hear from God when we actually hear from him. Now, Jacob doesn't simply walk away internalizing this wonderful truth. He doesn't simply affirm the wonderful message God gave him and then move on. As we read in our two verses beyond what was in the bulletin, there's a sense where the Christian faith can turn into, I think I've alluded to this before with some of you, and some of you who are therapists know that in therapy there's this approach of reframing something or just switching verbiage and playing verbal gymnastics to try to ease people into things or ease suffering with people, like narrative and reframing. And there's a tendency in American Christianity to have Christianity be a mental reframe where if we just shift some verbiage and we shift some words around, we feel better about something. It just makes us look at things different. So it's like a mental gymnastic in our head, but it's divine and spiritual. Well, Jacob doesn't walk away just getting a new perspective that shapes the way he actually looks and perceives at something. Jacob actually looks at the tangible place that's there and says there's something tangibly sacred about the place he's at. And then he does something. He takes the items around him rocks, stones, and oil, and builds a memorial, a tangible monument to identify and mark the sacred place where God communicated to him and communicated the promise of redemption where he showed him the vision of heaven that would encounter earth and people and where Jacob builds with rock and oil it is designated a holy place, this local, tangible, holy place where God communicated salvation, and it's called Bethel. The spiritual and the sacred become tangible. This holy place called Bethel is where God promised Jacob that salvation would come. He had a dream of a ladder where angels would descend and ascend, a picture of God interacting with Jacob, desiring to interact with us the human family in redemptive love. Angels, God's messengers, descending and ascending. If we fast forward to the New Testament, we find Christ embarking on his earthly ministry to call his disciples to form the church, the community of faith. Nathaniel and Philip. Philip believes in some capacity that Jesus is the promised Messiah spoken of in the Law and the Prophets. And our gospel reading has Nathaniel and Philip affirming Jesus as the Son of God within their limited capacity at that time. 
but Jesus challenges them to consider the deeper meaning behind his mission. Alluding to the fig tree, seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree has an implication, a symbol of messianic peace. And Jesus' subtle description of Nathaniel is contrasted to some of Jacob's dubious behaviors at his time. However, Jesus pulls from Jacob's dream, which would have been familiar to Nathaniel and Philip, and states that what was a dream in the Old Testament would be a reality in the New Testament. When we think about Jacob building this sacred place, when Christ calls Nathaniel and Philip, Christ is building the house of God, the sacred place where he dwells with his people. And we have to ask ourselves, the sacred place of God where Christ meets with his people, this sacred place where God meets the tangible and the spiritual together, how does he meet his people? This reality includes the reality of angels descending and ascending in Jesus' description but not on people, but on Christ himself, the Son of Man. And so in reading this, what is the significance of angels and the redemptive promise that salvation is accomplished by Christ? Our prayer we read, we read was actually the collect for this holy day. And when we look at the Psalms reading and our reading from Revelation, we're given some insight into the incarnational and sacramental nature of redemption we see in the Genesis account and realized in John. There's an incarnational and sacramental message that we read when we think of angels descending and ascending and God connecting heaven and earth in the house of God, which is where God dwells with his people. The book of Revelation describes this heavenly battle that took place when Our Lady gave birth to the Messiah. Now, there's not really a linear time in eternity, and Revelation is not always or even usually chronological despite Schofield's assertions. Some of y'all got that right. Okay, some of y'all didn't. Okay. Was that, was that okay? Okay, all right. All right. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I, I used to believe Schofield, so that was a shot of myself. But despite that, we're given a picture of this battle that rages as God's plan of incarnational and sacramental redemption unfolded. And while church tradition and the church fathers theorize, they theorize, and the church fathers talk about this, that what outraged Lucifer towards God was that God himself would become a human made of flesh and blood. That instead of these heavenly beings who had no mortal flesh, who could move and transport by mere thought, because that's what angels can do, they move outside of time and space so an angel could just think and be there. All-powerful, all-knowing, as created beings that when full revelation is given to them by God, they know the full extent of everything they know. And then when the plan or notion that God would make humans from matter and dirt, and God one day would participate in that, that the creator 
It was an offense. Oh, and that they would serve humans. These angelic hosts would serve these creatures made of dirt. Imagine if you were asked to serve a dog or an ant. And whatever this ant or dog, or in a worst case scenario, a cat. <laughs> right? Far, are you a Okay, okay. I never understood cats. I grew up with dogs and cats, but I just, I don't get the, the love. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't get, I just always, I grew up with four dogs and three cats, and I always thought to myself, even with the cats I had, I know they would kill me if I was small enough. <laughs> I knew it in my heart of hearts, they would. And every cat owner, including my friend Darren, swears their cat's different. My cat would never do that, but I knew that they would. <laughs> but anyway, despite that, um, imagine if you, if your boss came to you or you held a high position of dignity and you were asked to serve an animal who had no rational thought, who simply would have been a brute, and you were to not just take care of them but serve them at their request. And then you found out that the creator that you were asked to serve under was going to become one of them and take on the form of one of them. And Aquinas and other church fathers talk about that when Lucifer heard this, it was such an offense to him that the idea he would, that I'm not going to serve this and you asking me to serve you to do this is beneath me. And instant, of course, instantaneously, the way the non-time, non-linear can communicate Thoughts are known immediately, and decisions were made in eternity about who would serve and who wouldn't. So the angels, when presented with this plan in eternity past, were outraged, and in time as it unfolded, they responded in time as they did in eternity past when presented with this plan. As the creator of the universe would submit himself to be born to an earthly creature, Our Lady, who not only would become the mother of Christ, but by giving birth to Christ and his body meant she is the mother of the church. Which is why we see this enmity and hostility between Lucifer and Our Lady in Genesis. Because this is, she's the means by which the creator of the universe took upon human flesh and started the plan of redemption in place. And so while this is deducted in church history, we see the battle take place in our reading in Revelation, that at the incarnation we see the hostility and battle towards God, and the means of redemption was played out in an unseen realm, and Satan, being defeated, was no longer able to roam the councils of heaven and accuse the brethren as he had in the past, like we see in Job. But one wonders why a battle? You'd have to think with God, an instant thought, an, an instant, not even time can describe, just to will it over means it's over. 
But our text in Revelation gives a pretty descriptive battle, and there's other places in the scriptures, scriptures that allude to this, where in our Psalms reading indicate angels do the bidding of our Lord, and Revelation indicates that there's an actual battle taking place. Now, the angelic realm has no physical form in their natural state, so we have to surmise the battles of a spiritual power or struggle in an unseen, usually unseen to all my charismatic friends. But realm, this realm was not visible. But the battle was real. But why? Couldn't God have just with a mere thought vanquished Satan and his host of fallen angels? Why call on his legions of angels or Michael to engage in this warfare when we, we read in Psalms that they do the bidding and our colleague talks about the angels engaging the request of our Lord? Our reading in Revelation states that salvation was guaranteed and accomplished and Satan and the fallen angels defeated. So that should be the end of the story. But if you've ever read that in different times of war where one side surrenders or and the other side's victorious, there are still hostilities or skirmishes that take place even after a war's ended. Hostilities, skirmishes of combat, even if a surrender has been signed, victory accomplished, you still see remnants of groups still out there fighting for a while, sometimes for months or a few years. And we read the last verse in Revelation, and it describes this. It states, it will be terrible for the earth and sea. And this is after the defeat. It will be terrible for the earth and sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with anger and he knows he doesn't have much time. There's a tangible reality that the enemy hates each human person and desires their earthly and eternal destruction or at least defeat. And I think we've all felt that battle in our lives at different points. If not, I need to speak to you and find out how you've avoided that. The spiritual hostilities or skirmishes that the enemy engages in, we find in our reading in Genesis and John, Christ is the ladder and he is the gate of heaven. He's accomplished redemption, but that redemption is not simply a mental ascent to a dogma or a mental reframe that shifts our thinking. That redemption includes an incarnational and sacramental dimension meaning God entering into the tangible reality of the lives that we live in. So it's not just like hunkering down and just bearing through in the sense that, okay, I know in my head this has been won, but nothing's taking place tangibly, right? And part of this incarnational and sacramental dimension involves the use of Michael and angels to wage war on God's behalf. This ladder that we see Jacob having a dream of where angels descend and ascend and being able to work as messengers of God to engage the human drama in the message of redemption and then in the New Testament descending and ascending on the Son of Man to go forth and complete his mission. This is a picture of the incarnational and sacramental nature of God's engagement. God uses tangible means to take on a sacred and spiritual dimension and sacred and spiritual space. 
just like Jacob realized, just like Jesus affirmed in our reading. And we see this sacramental incarnational theme all throughout John's Gospels. This is where the incarnational and sacramental nature of our faith in Christian life is displayed in the ministry of Michael and the angels. So they're not simply like, um, what was the movie we talked about? The, with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I don't remember the name of it. Okay, I didn't either. Where the angel gave up his, remember that? City of Angels. What is it? City of Angels. It was such a sad movie, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So it's not like a, just a sentimental uh, theme where we think of angels as being, I mean, we give them pictures of wings and holding swords because that's the way our natural eye, uh, our natural mind can conceptualize things in the physical. But the incarnational and sacramental nature of our faith and Christian life is displayed in the ministry of Michael and the angels. The sacraments are the visible signs and seals that convey grace to God's people the church is the ultimate sacrament. The church is the ultimate sacrament in the world that brings God's presence in a tangible way, not just in a mental way where we feel better or gain more knowledge, but where God connects to us through means. When we look back where Jacob took rocks and he poured oil over stones, we're getting glimpses of how means are used for God to connect because we live in the physical realm. So when Father Seth or Father Andrew consecrate the bread and wine, or at some point when Reverend, soon to be Reverend Amber does the same thing, God is working through those things to make real connection and real attachment to God's people right here in the now. So we're not just left to think different. We're left to, in God is the ladder from heaven with the angels ascending and descending takes place in our midst right, not just here. I mean, here right now when we assemble, but in the lives of believers as they live out their Christian life, but in a special way in the sacred assembly when we meet together regardless of where the location is. This is where the ministry of Michael and the angels are displayed. The church being the ultimate sacrament, the angels and Michael are the unseen but tangible and real means to carry out the will of our Lord as they commune with Jesus and go forth on our behalf to protect us and engage in battle on our behalf because there are still battles waging though the war has been won. When we read the Lord feeds us with his body, when the sacrament of reconciliation is granted, confirmation and the spirit is placed on people. These are examples in the angels of Michael, Gabriel and others go forth in a tangible but unseen way, unseen to the physical eye. When we read the Lord as our protector, he has angels and Michael as a host and a host of other angels who are there protecting. This is why they engage Satan in battle. It wasn't just the Lord who went down and made a quick move and just vanquished them. As our colic reads and Psalms read, they do our Lord's bidding, and God uses means to fulfill his will. 
Clement of Alexandria, a church father who lived about from 150 AD to 215 AD, about wrote about angels, we are never out of their holy keeping. And he said, even if we are praying alone, we have a choir of the angels standing with us. We'll hear this shortly when Father Seth does the sacrament. Our own sacramental service affirms that we do not participate in the body and blood of Christ alone, but with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven present with us. A tangible, real, unseen reality right here. In closing, the redemption of our Lord is not simply mental assent. It's not a better frame of mind, though it might have those benefits. It doesn't simply just help manage difficulties by giving new perspectives, though that might happen. The redemption of our Lord involves the incarnational and sacramental realities that engage our lives through the church. And God uses angels to accomplish his redemptive purpose and carry out his divine will. But notice that our collect says we're included in that as well. We are actually involved to engage in the mission of our Lord. When he says angels and mortals, that we've been blessed with the opportunity as part of the church, we are part of the sacrament of the church to bring the tangible presence of Christ to the world around us. So God using angels and us to accomplish his redemptive purpose and carry out his divine will, we're reminded that God is tangibly present through the unseen physical eye sometimes physical, unseen, but present in our lives. God save us. St. Michael and the holy angels pray for us and defend us.